Welcome to Learn Me Right. Today, we are very excited to welcome back Casey Haining to the podcast. Casey, thank you so much for being on here again. Thank you both. I'm so excited to be here again in your wonderful presence. Can you please remind us, I mean, we know quite well, but for our (laughs) listeners, what is your role or position at QUT? So um, I'm a research fellow at QUT and um, I work with um, Professors Lindy Wilmot and um, Professor Ben White. Now we have some rapid fire questions and um, we, you have done this before, so we, we'll we we'll see how they go. So um, what is your highlight of the year so far? Well, my highlight um, of the year is similar to the last one I told you about, which was coming to Queensland and seeing the team again. Um, <laughs> but it's a new year, so <laughs> new good vibes when I've come up at Brisbane and um, see the lovely team again. Um, but it's always a delight. I mean, there was taco making night and everything, and so it was a really um, wonderful time to be up there with the team. Um. Your, so we know that your your coffee order is a long black. Now, do you have a preferred accompaniment to this this delicacy? I mean, I have a massive sweet too, so I can't go past um, a sweet when um, other people are having one. Um, I'm particularly fond of a brownie, but um, will take anything sweet. <laughs> that is the most perfect response. <laughs> now, um. Uh, Ruthie remembers your karaoke song. What was that? It was, I believe, Bleeding Love by Leona Lewis. Is that still your song of choice? Um, it is, but fun fact, I haven't been to karaoke since I went with you two, so <laughs> it would, would be open to a new, another karaoke session um, soon if you're keen. Always. Um, <laughs> maybe Able this year. We'll find somewhere good and we can hit, instead of Sydney, we'll hit the Brisbane karaoke and really give them a run for their money. I'm in your hands. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to it. So in terms of the substantive part of our podcast, let's go to our first question today, which is what is your research problem or topic that you're currently investigating in your research? Um, so my research um, interest that I'm going to be discussing today is around um, remuneration for um, voluntary assisted dying practitioners, um, as well as regional access, um, particularly within the Western Australian context where I've done a lot of the work. Excellent. So would you like to delve into that a little bit more? So from my understanding outside the bad context, I would presume that doctors are being paid for providing a a legal and health service. Um, Is this the case? Well, it's a very interesting question, um, but currently the uh, there is inaccurate, inadequate rather um, remuneration for those who are within voluntary assisted dying provision, and the reason that that is is because it's actually not recognised under the Medicare benefit schedule. In fact, euthanasia, as it's termed, is explicitly excluded. Um, That doesn't mean that MBS items cannot be claimed in relation to this practice, but it also, what it means is that there's limited codes that um, practitioners can claim under. And these are generally restricted to basically general end of life planning, which are restricted as they are. Um, 
but these do not reflect the time that is spent to actually go through the voluntary assisted dying process with a patient, particularly if you're a coordinating practitioner, that is the practitioner who takes the main carriage of the process, which it could take that practitioner around six to eight hours per patient. Some have even reported there's empirical evidence, some um, quoting 60 hours for particularly um, complex um, patients. So what this means is particularly if you're a general practitioner, so general practitioners are the larger, largest group provider of that, means that there's limited scope to actually be paid for the work that you're doing um, because you can't claim an MBS um, item number and because you're based on a business model, that means that you have limited scope to be paid unless you're, you're doing it outside of your work. Um, for health services, it's a little bit different. So some health services will permit practitioners, particularly specialists, to claim within their health service time. Um, not all health services will do that, and it becomes particularly complex if it's a specialist visiting a patient because the MBS, they can't really bill because the MBS doesn't recognise that a specialist should be actually um, outside and visiting patient outside. So there's very limited scope there. Um, so what this means is either a lot of these practitioners are visiting these patients and going through the voluntary dying process unremunerated or they're electing to privately bill. So some practitioners will privately bill, but some practitioners are reluctant to do so because how do you privately bill? It's particularly difficult to privately bill someone who's dying, particularly if they don't have the financial means to do it. Now, it's, it, there is ways to do that, and some practitioners have kind of devised their own schedules flexible um some will you know adopt their schedules based on you know if a patient can't afford it but it, it becomes quite a difficult conundrum when you have a lawful medical service and you can't bill appropriately um because of these restricted mbs items and because the restricted um items that you can actually claim for really restricted to the end of life discussion um, and it doesn't extend to other aspects of the process for instance if you're administrating um, you can't claim anything. And I imagine that that's particularly complex and hard for people because the administration of the medication, I think, takes a, potentially a really long time and it's not a process that should be rushed. Um, and I imagine the doctors don't do that, but that comes at the expense then of them spending quite a lot of time that is unremunerated, as you say, and that's really problematic and um, doesn't sort of, yeah, re respect the time, I suppose, of the doctors who provide um, so much to patients and also the patients who are going through that process. That's a real problem. And I would also imagine it's not conducive to doctors undergoing training to become, uh, well, what's the word, registered in this area, which is not going to be conducive to access to voluntary assisted dying, which is a legal healthcare option. Yeah, that's right. So I think we kind of looking at this um, regulated practice is it is a medicalized framework, which means you're contingent on a medical practitioner to get you through it. Um, we know that there's a dearth of providers, um, and particularly when there's a dearth of providers, that means that their workloads are high. And so we need to be really supportive of those people because if we need the practitioners available to meet the demands, we need to ensure that they're looked after. If they're doing this outside of their work and they're not getting paid, there's only so far that altruism can stretch. So that becomes particularly problematic. 
And another aspect of this, I should say, is around the training as well. So um, as you um, indicated, that they have to go through this kind of training process to provide BAD. Now, this training takes around about six to eight hours. And what that means is that if you're not paying practitioners to do that, then there's little incentive to do that. So some, again, if you're working within a health service, some health services have actually allowed practitioners to do that within their paid time. But if you're outside that health service setting, you might have those opportunities. Now, there has been incentives done in various states. So, for instance, Western Australia, um, there has been kind of a push towards remunerating regional practitioners to do the training to try and address that. And I know we're talking about regional access later. Um, but really, it is quite restrictive and it is also really setting contingent um, and state contingent. Well, that actually does raise the issue of regional access that you just mentioned there, Casey. Can you tell us a bit about that problem and, and particularly how that might link into remuneration as we've just talked about? So in terms of regional access, so um, we know and I think we need it's really important when we frame this discussion is that regional inequity is not restricted to the bad context. The reason that we're discussing this today is because that's our research interest, but it is, you know, we know that regional access issues exist across all healthcare areas. Um, however, there has been kind of concerted efforts to help um, address some of the regional um, access issues, particularly Western Australia was a good example of this. So Western Australia being the second state to introduce voluntary assisted dying laws looked at the Victorian law and also looked at the geography of Western Australia. So we know that particularly because it's vast geography, if you have really remote towns and you don't have willing providers within those towns, access is going to be pretty problematic. So what Western Australia did is they tried to introduce a number of initiatives. Some of them were legislative initiatives. Some of them were implementation initiatives to really try and help facilitate those um, access um, inequities. Um, so to ensure that, yes, if we're introducing this new form of healthcare into Western Australia, that being a new um, lawful end-of-life choice, that we want to make sure that, that I guess it's grounded in autonomy, that each resident, whether you're living in metropolitan areas or whether you're living regionally, you have an equal, and I use that in inverted commas, opportunity or at least try to equalise that playing field so that we can address them. Again, acknowledging that there's always going to be those regional barriers that exist, but if we can mitigate them to some extent, that will help us facilitate those access. And again, in those areas, and again, thinking about this in terms of because we are, we're talking about a medicalised framework, because we're really contingent on a medical practitioner, we need to make sure that these patients can access these medical practitioners who are qualified to do so, again, acknowledging that there's a dearth of providers, most of which will be located in metropolitan areas, that they can actually reach these patients. So again, if you're not remunerating these practitioners and there's not really that incentive there, it becomes really difficult to actually go to those regional areas and ensure that access. 
That's a really, really great summary of both of those issues, Casey. And you've also already hinted at some of the possible solutions. You mentioned some of the things in the law and in the implementation process. Can you speak a little bit more to some of the uh, government or law or policy solutions to addressing these remuneration and regional access problems that you've so beautifully outlined for us? Yeah, of course. So um, I'll use Western Australia as a case study because I think that's a really good example. Um, so I think one of the starting points in Western Australia was certainly to actually acknowledge this in their guiding principles in their legislation. Now, guiding principles are interpretive principles, but actually setting it in stone helps to guide the framework and the implementation um, initiatives that might stem out of that. So some of the more specific things within the legislation was around revising some of the aspects of the Victorian law, um, acknowledging that Western Australia being the second jurisdiction, they did really use Victoria as a template, but did make some modifications, particularly around regional access. So one of the modifications that Western Australia did was in Victoria, when a patient is assessed, they are assessed by two practitioners. One of those practitioners needs to be a medical specialist who is an expert and has experience in that patient's disease. Now, specialists um, are a rare breed as it is, and also they're even rarer in regional areas. So it becomes really difficult if, A, you've got a patient that's already struggling to access a health service, let alone accessing a specialist whose specialists typically won't actually be located in, within a health service regionally, they're typically only visiting, and there's usually limited specialties available, so patients already have to travel. So one thing that they um, did was actually um, made sure that you didn't actually have to have that specialist as your second um, practitioner to make that assessment. Another thing that they did was actually um, reduce some of the requirements. So if you um, you could hold a general registration, you didn't have to be a specialist or be a general practitioner. They also reduced the um, the amount of like years of experience that you needed to have as well. Um, so and, and they also made it more um, feasible for overseas trained practitioners to actually um, be involved in this process as well. Now, by doing that. And by lowering that threshold, it doesn't mean that any practitioner or junior doctors, you still need to have a certain level of experience, but they tried to reduce this acknowledging the type of practitioners that might be available in these regional towns. But although they kind of lowered that threshold, they also raised the threshold because what Western Australia did was as a part of the application process for voluntary assisted dying, you also need to um be assessed by the department. You have to go through referee reports, etc. So there's an, an additional stringent um, requirement. So they're being assessed for their capability and whether they're the right people to commence this work by adding additional assessments. That's not just restricted to qualification, but I guess assesses their character. So they've, they've done that. Another thing that WA did was to try and broaden the type of health practitioners who could have an active role in this process to increase accessibility, particularly in regional areas. So at the time of contemplating the law, uh, they did consider using nurse practitioners as part of the assessment process, but that ultimately wasn't implemented. However, nurse practitioners are permitted to be administering 
practitioners in the voluntary dying process, which is not the case in Victoria. Um, other things that they've done was around telehealth. So there is restrictions around telehealth because of the Commonwealth Criminal Code. And I know that you're discussing this further with um, Katrine, so I won't talk too much about that. But what Western Australia did was they allowed, provided a greater provision for telehealth um, in their legislation. So Victoria really took the pro approach that you couldn't use telehealth at all, whereas Western Australia said you can use it to the extent permitted by the Commonwealth Criminal Code. Um, and another thing that Western Australia did was they established this regional access standard, which meant that the CEO had to set out a series of requirements of how they were going to facilitate regional access. And what that does is really, again, demonstrates a commitment. One of those commitments was the establishment of the regional access support service. And what this does is it's a service that's administered by the um, CANI, Care Navigator Service, and what it does is it remunerates practitioners who are going to, out to see regional patients. So it pays it pays them a set fee to go out to see patients, also pay for all their travel and accommodation costs. Um, and that fund, those funds have also been used to remunerate practitioners for undergoing um, the tra mandatory training to see regional practitioners. Uh, sorry, to see regional patients rather. So again, incentivizing that um, training. And again, statewide services are going out and actually visiting these patients as well. So that so it is facilitating that um, that transport requirement. And I guess another thing that Western Australia did was had explicit reporting requirements about regional access. Again, so not only setting out those commitments through guiding principles and access standards, but actually assessing what and monitoring to what extent is this actually on the ground being played out. So it sounds like WA looked at Victoria and not only just like made some improvements, but kind of used Victoria as a template and then modified it according to their specific needs based on the geography and um, just, you know, the population levels in WA. And it sounds like that the government can do a really good job of modifying law to meet the specific needs of specific people, which is really exciting. It's one of the benefits of a federal system, I guess. <laughs> in some ways, it would, some in some ways it would be lovely to have a consistent law, but it's also really cool to see how states do adapt laws for their own purposes and needs, as you've flagged. I think that probably leads into our last question, Casey, if that's okay. So our last question for today um, is what can the individual do to either help or what should they know in this particular space? So I think it comes down to any law form change, I, I would like to think does get informed by advocacy. So I think I would encourage, you know, anyone who's interested, whether you're a practitioner, et cetera, to really, if you're passionate about regional access, if you're passionate about helping to establish basic level of remuneration for practitioners involved, to really, I guess, read up about it, but also advocate, write letters to governments, um, et cetera, to try and, again, I guess there is power in numbers. 
um, to really kind of advocate for changes in MBF items, changes in laws in particular states. So we talked about Western Australia being a particularly good model, but if you see um, other states where there might be kind of inferior models, maybe there is kind of um, a case to you know, advocate to that end um, to see changes. And I guess we talk about Victoria being the template and it's we shouldn't be critical on Victoria because Victoria really set the way and also biased because I am Victorian, but I think... <laughs> You know, it is easy to say, oh, you know, you don't have a great model, look what this state has done. But really everyone was leaning on Victoria. So mm-hmm. so we need to, you know, there's upcoming reviews um, that have been incorporated within legislation. So I encourage anyone who is passionate about this to A, inform yourself and B, if you can and you feel um, passionate enough to actually advocate for um, change. That's excellent advice. I think that's something everyone could do would be to just send an email to their local MP advising them of their concerns about regional access. That's brilliant. And hopefully we do see some Medicare billing codes for assisted dying at some stage soon. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Casey. That was an excellent overview of two really important issues. Um, And hopefully we do see some change on both of those fronts. Um, learning from WA, which sounds like an excellent model. So, And thank you for your advocacy and research in this particular area because without you here to inform us, then we wouldn't be able to, you know, what is it? Spread the ideas around. I think there's like a colloquial like concept there that I'm alluding to, but it has clearly escaped me. <laughs> I should acknowledge that this is by no means solely my work and you know obviously this has been the work of um, Professor Ben White and Professor Lindy Wilmot and um, Dr Simon Tower also was um, very supportive and helped us um, write our remuneration article so um, I'm only one member of a team who who has um, contributed to this work. At the same time, you are the member of the team today talking to us about this. So (laughs) credit to you, Casey Haney. (laughs) Now, thank you so much. Um, And also thank you to our listeners for listening in on another Bad Spin-Off episode.